Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. These days, just about everyone is an amateur genealogist. One swab of DNA and you can find out where your ancestors are from and and start meeting all your new, distant cousins or even half-brothers. But for people of African-American descent, the question of genealogy isn't so simple. It can be enormously complicated to track family lineages shaped by slavery. And yes, it also involves complicated questions of identity and pride. Our summer intern, Alexis Moore, wanted to learn more about how black St. Louisans are tracing their roots and exploring these questions. Here's what she found. Late this July, St. Louis County Library hosted a workshop called Tracing Your African American Ancestors. The folks who showed up were searching for more information on their background. One such person was Carolyn Kidd Royal. Born in 1954, she grew up in North St. Louis during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. This was a time that informed her understanding of what it meant to be black in America. Redlining, white flight, these were examples of marginalization that permeated, but were hard to come by in the classroom. That was not taught in schools. You never saw uh, pictures of slaves with the bruises on their backs or how they were physically treated on those plantations. You had to learn all of that on your own. And so in the mid-60s, when the whole black movement was happening, they were also telling the school systems, we want black books in these schools. These kids kids need to learn about their history. And of course, the schools didn't have anything about our histories in there. Most of the history I've learned has been since I've been an adult, Mm -hmm. and I'm seeking it. This is a part of it. This is a part of me seeking my black history, my black heritage, is going after my genealogy, going after the lives that all of my ancestors have lived, and maybe some of the things that they've gone through. Carolyn talked about how this nation's history affected her sense of identity for the worse. But as the civil rights movement gave way to the black power movement, shifts in culture made a difference. Specifically, a 1969 James Brown classic. I can remember when James Brown said, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. In that mid-60s time frame, right before he came out with that song, you were literally just kind of not happy with you. You weren't happy that, you know, your skin was brown and your hair was a little different. And, you know, overall, we did not have a sense of pride in our race and in our individual selves. At least I didn't. And so when he came out with that song, it stopped me in my tracks. I'm saying, what did he just say? And he said, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. I saw myself look so much different in the mirror. It was okay for my hair not to be like the white girl's hairs were. I was proud to be a black person. I was proud to be a black person. And I can remember Prior to that, it had to have been like within a five-year time period, my father had asked me, he said, if you had a chance to be anything you wanted to be in this world, what would you choose to be? And I said, a white man. And he looked at me, he's like, what? I said, they got everything. They got everything going for them. Why would I not want to be a white man if I had a choice of being anything I wanted to be? And so he just walked off. He didn't have an answer for me. All night, so tough, you're tough enough. Go in, 
For Carolyn, genealogy is a natural extension of this identity work. Preserving her sense of self is much like preserving her family history, a part of who she is. It started with collecting family obituaries in the early 2000s. Soon after, she began using resources from the St. Louis County Library in her search, including their events aimed at African-American researchers. Sometimes she'd take the same classes over and over, just in case she'd missed something. The chances of that are very likely. The path to knowing your ancestry isn't a straightforward one, especially not for Black Americans. The event Carolyn attended in July was hosted by Daniel Lillienkamp, the reference specialist in history and genealogy with St. Louis County Library. He says that African Americans are one of the hardest ethnic groups to do genealogy for because of America's history with slavery. And when you start getting back into the 1800s, that challenge becomes clear. Post-emancipation in the Deep South, you were pretty much living in, in chaos. The economy was a wreck. People's lives were disrupted. Um, People were trying to find their relatives. They were trying to determine what their surname was going to be. You know, there's this myth that African Americans took the name of the, the surname of their last slave owner. And undoubtedly, in some cases, that's true. But in many cases, they did not. They picked a different name, or they actually had a surname. It might have been the surname of their father's 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 slave owner, you know, generations back, but they had it, they knew what it was. The slave owning class probably didn't know what it was. So it's not recorded, but they knew. And then of course, you know, getting back into the period of enslavement, the records probably exist. There's a belief that every enslaved person's name is written down at least once. But the question is where? And it's going to be in the records that the slave-owning family kept, be it a journal, be it an inventory, be it uh, a will or bills of sale that they had. And so that can be challenging to track down where those those are. You have to know the name of the slave owner. And then you have to research them. And in many cases, an African-American researcher will end up knowing more about the slave-owning family then that family's descendants know because they just have had to track down all the records. In the search for their ancestry, many Black Americans directly face the past of a nation that has systematically mistreated them, that has made people property. This lack of belonging is codified, not only in records, but experiences. There are traumas that still occur and old wounds that live on today. Thinking about this brings up a fresh pain for Carolyn. When we first moved to the neighborhood where my mom's house is right now, it was in 1964, mid-60s. We were the first black family on that block. And we were going to Mark Twain Elementary School, which is right around the corner. We just walked to elementary school. My two brothers and I were walking towards the school, and here comes three white boys on bicycles. They started circling us as we're walking to school. And I just told my brothers, just look down, don't say a word, just keep on walking. And they're shouting out all kinds, and this is a true story, all kind of N-words, go back to Africa. And so we're still walking, we're still walking, and, and they're circling us, and then one of the three boys just spit right in my face. And I reached out 
and snatched the little boy down to the ground off his bike, and I just started beating him, just punching him, just punching him, just punching him. Now, my younger brother turned around, ran back to the house to get my mom because she had just told us going to school. My baby brother grabbed another one of the boys and he's just punching with his little fist as hard as he could. And I'm looking at him out of one corner of my eye because if the guy hit him back, then I got two of them to beat up, right? And so then my mom shows up and she comes down the street and she said, let him go. Let him go. I could just hear her in my ears saying that because I was trying to kill him. I was punching so hard. And then he got up on his bike and the rest of them, they just took off riding away. And she said, okay, they're gone now. She didn't walk us to school. She said, you all just go on to school from here. I don't know if she had to go to work or what. Mm -hmm. And so we just went on to work. Now, I've never forgotten that story. And I said, you know, here we are kids, you know, just trying to go to school. And I get real emotional about that event. because it didn't have to happen, but it was in mid-60s, once again, black people being attacked just because of the color of their skin. This pain of not belonging, of being othered in her own country, still lingers. As she explores her ancestry, she's looking for her roots, for connection, and finds some information through DNA testing. Carolyn recently had hers done, finding that much of her ancestry lies in West and Central Africa. So, she took a pilgrimage. And I recently went to Ghana earlier this year, and I just wanted to get closer and closer to my heritage, my original heritage, so that I feel a connection. I feel a real connection. At some point, and I know when I go to Cameroon, and that's going to be within the near future, I'll walk around and see people looking just like me, you know, little round faces and, you know, just me. I will see me everywhere I go. And it just gives you such a feeling of home that you feel home here, but our home here is what we grew up on. That home will be what your makeup is, what your origin is. And so I think that's what all of this research is going to do. It's going to give me that ultimate connection. When I finally hit the African and all of my genealogy, I'm just going to be dancing all over the place. I will be shouting. That road is a long one, winding and difficult. America's history of slavery and oppression has shown itself to be alive with lasting effects, and not just in the search for ancestry records. Carolyn's story of fragmented identity is not unique, and the search for connection to this country is often an uphill battle. The journey is lifelong. Her search continues. That was produced by Alexis Moore, and joining us in studio to talk more about this issue is Bernice Hartfield. She's treasurer of the Association of African American Researchers in St. Louis. Bernice, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. Now, we heard Carolyn Kidd Royal's story. When did you first feel pride in being black? Well, I guess it started in eighth grade, and um, we had a substitute teacher there. I can't remember his name right now, but um, he got me interested in history. And then after I had my first son, I realized I didn't know anything about my father's side. And I started trying to get some information from him, and it just grew. Mm -hmm. And once I 
started going downtown and you do have to do the reels. So that kind of, I got deterred, but I never gave up the dream. And you say you had to go downtown. Was this to the courthouse? To, to the library. The library. St. Louis uh, Public Library downtown on 1301, I think, Olive. Okay. And a lady named Cynthia Mueller. She's still there. <laughs> and I, she helped you get into these reels. Well, yeah, she did. And um, it was just some exhausting Really, really hard work back then because you had not, you know, you're just going by what um, someone said to you. Like uh, someone told me it was one uh, one of my relatives was in Monroe County, Mississippi. So you had to go out there and trying to pull it out. I finally found a sound dex of my great grandmother and I saw her, her mother and her mother on there. And I was so excited. So, you know, at least I got that. I stopped for some, I stopped. And it's, this is a, it's genealogy is, is a habit. Mm-hmm. It's a very expensive habit because you never it, it it gets you and you it grabs you and you're there. I mean you're stuck with it because you want to know more. You want to know more. You get a little bit. You want to know more. I have two grown sons and two grandchildren, and now I'm just like okay. But I have found so much. I recently found that uh, one of my great grandmothers was on the um, DOS rolls for the Native Americans, which and, I, and tell us what that is. It's it's a Native American um, census. Okay. And I don't know what year it was taken, but it's 18-something, 18 1890 maybe, or 1870, 89, one of those years. And so she was a Native American. Mm, part. Part, yeah. yeah. Mm, right, so. And that's so, something, had, had you ever suspected that you might have Native American ancestry? I've heard it, but mm-hmm. you know, you don't, you always hear that. Yeah. A lot of blacks say, a lot of African Americans say that, but you don't have any proof. I did do my DNA, and it does say I, you know, I have some. And um, I, I was just shocked to find it, though, because mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting to find her yeah. on there with her name and everything. So, uh, but um, I think genealogy is a very good way of uh, learning more about your family, <coughs> being able to um, meet people. You go to different um, conferences. You make essay. It's expensive, so you got to save money. <laughs> yeah. Like my other habit is uh, photography, so that's expensive hobby too. And I'm like, why do I keep pick, picking up these habits that are so expensive? <laughs> but um, I have learned a great deal about my um, grandparents that I didn't know, mm-hmm. and further into my great grandparents. But then after that, I'm at a block right now because um, I don't know who the slave master is and his parents. My not slave parents, uh, the one that's right there, mm-hmm. born in slavery in eighteen. 55. So you were able to trace this back to an ancestor who was born into slavery. Yes, um, s- several. How, how did that make you feel to have here this concrete evidence that your story was part of this this tragic part of our nation's history? Well, looking at my father's side of the people, I knew it was because of their fare. Mm-hmm. So I did expect it. So it wasn't shocking. Mm-hmm. And um, some people... Some of my relatives don't want to hear about it, but it happened. So I'm like, I can't, you can't change it. So mm-hmm. it did happen. So I just, you know, keep, I just want to know who was the last one, the, the last slave master. And on my mother's side, they followed a wagon because my great-grandmother lived a long time. And she told my one cousin, I was 10 when she died, which I didn't understand who she was. But mm-hmm. she was, um, I think she was born 1864. Okay. So... So right at the tail end of the Civil right, War. Right. So what else have you found that ended up surprising you? I understand you've you've even well, encountered. Well, that was a surprise when I found them on the sound decks. Mm-hmm. So her mother was a, 
1880, so my great-grandmother, her mother was on there. Then mm -hmm. her mother was on there. So she was born in 1798. Oh, wow. So you've been able to trace so, this back very yes. far. Yes. Uh, you mentioned that you have some family members who don't want to know about these details. Right. Uh, do you understand their hesitancy there? Well, some people feel that... Um, why you bring it up? Because it's not going to help you now. Mm -hmm. There's no sense of knowing. I said, but I think history is important to know so it won't repeat itself in the future. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling them, I said, you have to have some pride to see how far we've come. And and then, you know, because, you know, got lawyers, doctors, teachers, you know, a couple of principals, several ministers, you know, it's a huge family. And it's something to be proud about, proud proud of. And so that gives you a sense of pride that mm. from this this um, very hard beginning that yes. your family has been able to achieve these things. Right, right. Um, you've also done some DNA testing, and I understand that yes. indicated um, that, yes, you have this, this Native American blood. What yes. else did you end up learning from <laughs> DNA testing? Well, um, oh, I'm just like a melting pot. Cameroon, um, Benny, Togo, um, Europe, Europe, um, a European ancestor as yeah, well. European, uh, Italy, and one they updated it so Italy and Norway, which was shocking. You know, I'm like Italy, Norway, Norway. Said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Any sense of what part those Europeans entered the family tree? Um, I am not sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and have you been able? We've hear, we've heard so many stories about people who will do the 23andMe swab, and mm -hmm. they end up discovering they've got half cousins, they've got half siblings. Have you had any experiences like that? No, but uh, the ones that I've this uh, the second to third cousins, I've been able to. After I talked to them, I could figure out how how we were related. And this is my mother, my father's mother's family, because they had a lot of children, and uh, the sisters have gotten married, and names have changed, and we didn't know about each other, so we've connected that way. You've been able to figure out how uh -huh. this family tree all intersects. Right. So for somebody who's thinking about, I think I might want to get into my family genealogy, but uh -huh. I'm not sure if I want to take on this expensive habit, <laughs> what would you say to them? Well, I think it's something everyone should do, and, and if you got several sisters and brothers, each one of you could work at it, at, at, you know, at your leisure and, and uh, get your other cousins into it. Um, I, I'm, I'll have one brother, so I was the only one in the family. Then I got another cousin, an older cousin, and, and a cousin in Chicago that helped me a lot. So I think it's something to do. And it sounds to, like this uh, is, you said for you, the family, you know, the entire family can mm -hmm. take this on right. as a hobby. Mm -hmm. I understand you've also traveled to the South to search for documents and information. What was that process like? Well, when we went to uh, Mississippi, it was interesting because um, they had three different and Mississippi is about the worst state to to research because a lot of the records are not there or either they're not being processed as fast as the other states are because okay. a lot of several states have a, a lot online now so you don't have to go there but mississippi they don't have the money um they had three different schools went down there and digitized a lot of stuff but it's a lot of stuff i've heard that were it's not ha hasn't been di digitized and one judge when i went down there for a conference um several years ago said that a lot of stuff had been thrown away oh wow and he found it in the trash so he dug it out that's great that he did that right. i mean uh -huh. were you able to get what you needed then you you took the time well, to take this trip down there. i 
I found a marriage bond, mm-hmm. and um, that was all. So I was down there about four days, I believe. But now I have found some cousins, and hopefully we can hook to, hook up together and go back. You need to go back to your county. So I'm gonna go. I was in Jackson. I went to the um, the capital. So I'm gonna go back to the county and try to see if I can research some more. We're talking to Bernice Hartfield. She's treasurer of the Association of African American Researchers in St. Louis. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue our conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And now back to our conversation. We've been talking with Bernice Hartfield, and we're also joined today by Jim Vincent. Jim is the president and co-founder of the St. Louis African American History and Genealogy Society. That's the other genealogical society here focused on African Americans. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. And finally, we're joined by Sarah Cato. She's the co-founder and president of the Association of African Ancestry Researchers of St. Louis. Sarah Cato, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. For those of you listening, have you tried to explore your genealogy? What did you learn? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, Jim Vincent, I understand you'd grown up hearing about ancestors who'd actually escaped slavery in Missouri by fleeing to Illinois. How much of that have you been able to prove or disprove? Oh, I've been able to prove it uh, pretty well. This actually uh, happened. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. It began as a story in my family from the time I learned English. That is, mm-hmm. when I learned to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was constantly repeated. And not until I was in high school, I began to want to find out how true that story might might be. Mm-hmm. And it took me to, to the time that I got to college that I decided to actually do some real research in it. Um, it wasn't until after I was out of college that I, that I learned uh, that uh, that actually happened, that there was documentation about it. And when you say there was documentation, mm-hmm. what, what were you able to find that confirmed this, this amazing story? Well, in, in the 1930s, uh, the federal government uh, in, uh, had the Writers Project and writers would go around the southern states where there had been slavery, and they would interview former enslaved people and sort of write their stories. My great-grandmother was interviewed by them, and it shows up in the Writers Project. For each state, each southern state has uh, uh, books in the library that you can go and look at uh, to look up you know, former slaves. Not not mm-hmm. every enslaved person was listed, but periodically you will find somebody that you will know. I found three of my ancestors who had been interviewed by them. So that story was told. And then I put the facts together uh, of what I know from those family stories. I knew that my grandmother was born in Cairo, Illinois. So uh, I began to backtrack and look at that. And then I found that um, her father, my great-grandfather, was born in Cairo, Illinois, so th- that sort of fits together. Mm-hmm. So when you pulled, put that together with the time period, which was uh, 1861, right after the Civil War began, uh, not long after that, they, they developed what was called uh, contraband camps. 
and Cairo, Illinois, was one of the contraband camps. That that was one of the camps where escaped slaves sort of mingled to, uh, you, you know, to sort of get uh, uh, food and boarding and so forth. Sort of figure government. out the next step exactly. once they're on the free side. Exactly. Okay. And so that place was, in fact, there. I think about 1980, around 1988 or 89, somebody wrote an article about Cairo, Illinois, and the contraband camps and talked about uh, the Underground Railroad that I know ended in that area. Mm -hmm. And they talked about the cave uh, that my ancestors had talked about where they spent the night. They talked about uh, the roads that were used, the back roads that were used. They talked about the people who had been involved to help put that together. I, I'm trying not to get into a lot of minutia here, but sure. one of the caves, the people who were involved in the Underground Railroad would leave jugs of water and a sickle. And that part of the story always came up in the telling. And I in always, your family's In my family, yes. And I always wondered, what was the sickle about? And I understood that the sickle was placed in a direction to show you how to get to the next stop. Hmm. The interesting thing about the whole story is that my great, great, my third great grandmother, who was the one who ran away, uh, did not just up and leave one day. There was a lot of intelligence that is, as in secret information that was passed on, that she gathered before she made the trip. Uh, they talked about it being in December on a cold night. It was drizzly raining because the dogs would have more difficult time uh, sniffing them out. They talked about, oh. the, as I said, the caves and so forth. And they walked for miles. She had my great-grandmother, who was an infant at the time, and another young child that nobody had ever been able to identify in the family. At any rate, at any rate they eventually made it to Cairo, Illinois. Jim, that's an amazing story. I mean, yeah. thinking about, A, the fact that what your family had told you over the years, sure. that, that this was all true, and then also just knowing that you had an ancestor with that amount of bravery to, yes. to pull off such a journey. What did that leave you feeling? I'm getting uh, the chills just hearing you yeah. tell it. I don't know. I, I, I've never. <laughs> what it did was it gave me a passion to study who I am. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to the, the young lady who was talking at, at the program just before and how she broke down in, in tears and so forth. The thing that I know after all of these years is that you grow stronger. Those, those horrible things of slavery makes you tougher and makes you more determined to, you know, as Bernie said, to eat one more peanut <laughs> out of the uh, out of the whole thing. So uh, that's you know it's, yeah. it's just a certain feeling that you have of uh, of um, knowing something about who you are, no matter what the circumstances might have been. That's Jim Vincent. He's the president and co-founder of the St. Louis African American History and Genealogy mm -hmm. Society, telling us his, his family's amazing story. We're also joined here today again by Sarah Cato. Um, Sarah, your family also has a pretty amazing story, and, and you too grew up feeling hearing family lore. What were you told about your family as a child? Well, I'm, I'm listening to Jim, and uh, I'm a little surprised.
addressed that, how similar uh, his story is in that he was told as a very young child. I was as well told of my family as a very young child. Um, when, um, and I am probably betraying my age at this point, when I was a child, uh, there was no Head Start, no pre-K, no daycare. Grandma and grandpa were your daycare. Mm -hmm. uh, and so being a somewhat precocious child, um, after we read a couple of books and walked around the block and um, I practiced my letters, there was still probably like 10 hours left in the day. And so my grandfather said to me, uh, come here, I want to tell you about uh, my grandfather. And um, he had a chair there, you know, they sat in chairs facing each other. And uh, I was to sit on the floor, and he told me this story that um, Richmond Freeman came to Illinois to turn 21 and 18 and 18 on the back of a wagon hmm. with a white family named Gay. These now, are some really specific details. Exactly. But as you do genealogy, you learn several things. Rule number one, spelling doesn't count. Hmm. If you can say it phonetically, um, which is how, what the soundex is, it's the census in a phonetic way. If you can say it phonetically, it can be spelled in all those different ways. Mm -hmm. um, the, other, the second rule of genealogy is assume nothing. Well, my assumption was that my ancestor was enslaved and that these good white people from Virginia were helping him to escape enslavement by putting him on the back of the wagon and bringing him to Illinois. Mm -hmm. Wrong answer. He was free. His mother and father were free. He had never been enslaved, and he was more a part of the family that he came with because I eventually found out um, through one of my genealogical mentors, Mira Hertel, um, and I always like to give her a shout out because she really helped me a lot, um, that there was a, a monograph that came with a large group of people named Mitchell, Tilgeman, and West. And they wrote a monograph. And in this monograph, they talked about Edward Mitchell's children. And he had a whole rack of children, mm -hmm. a whole tribe. And because this was before electricity and lights and television, they didn't have much to do. Um, and so one of Edward Mitchell's son-in-laws was named John Gay. He was a businessman originally from St. Louis. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm reading this monograph that Mira had pointed me to, and all of a sudden, I'm in the basement at my house, and I jump up and I start hollering that it's true, it's true, everything that Granddaddy told me was true. All these details all because checked out. Because here is the white family named Gay that came in the caravan with 50-some-odd 50, 50 other people in addition to the servants and the slaves that they brought along, that they didn't count, um, you know, which who knows how many people they they were. This was in 1818. Mm -hmm. This was before 
you could get on the train. Uh, there were only a couple of different ways to come. You could take the river route or you could like come through uh, the Cumberland Gap if you were coming across the land. So it was a difficult journey. Mm-hmm. But yes, it, it um, uh, was very enlightening. And this idea of um, your ancestor being um, free and living south of the Mason-Dixon line, I feel like this is a part of history that mm-hmm. um, we don't talk very much about. How did that make you feel about your family lineage to know that, that this was, um, you know, that here he was living in this community, but that he had kind of a unique placement? Well, first of all, there was no Mason-Dixon line at that time. Uh, he was there before the Mason-Dixon line was. Um, and documented there, um, I have a document from 1803 from the um, county courthouse where they were from in Virginia. Um, at that time, if you were a free person of color, you had to go and register at the courthouse. Mm-hmm. Um, this shows his whole family being registered. His father, his mother, whose name I never knew, his brothers and sisters, whom I did not know, uh, they were all listed there. Uh, they took part in the census. His his father, Abram Freeman, was on the first U.S. census, which was done in 1790. Hmm. Um, so it made me feel, um, and and um, the lady who uh, did was talking at first who Carolyn was interviewed about going to school yes um, and that the boys were hollering to her go back to Africa I am mystified at how are you going to tell me to go back to Africa when my people were here before yours came off the boat at Ellis Island yeah there's very few Americans that can trace their time in this country back to the 1790s and and here your family can that's amazing Uh, that's Sarah Cato she's the co-founder and president of the Association of African Ancestry Researchers of St. Louis we're also talking today to Bernice Hartfield who's with the same group and Jim Vincent the president and co-founder of the St. Louis African American History and Genealogy Society. We need to take another quick break. When we get back, we'll continue our conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We're talking with members of St. Louis's African-American community about the work that they've done to explore their family's genealogy. That's Jim Vincent, Sarah Cato, and Bernice Hartfield. Do you have questions for our panel of genealogists? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, Jim Vincent, you're not just exploring your own family's history. You've also helped a number of people find out about theirs. And one of the big successes and interesting stories um, that you've been involved with involves the country of Liberia. Can you just tell us a little bit about this this story? Sure. I'll try to give you the quick version. And I know it's hard with genealogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, quite, it's quite an ex- extensive story. Uh, one of our members uh, got uh, a trunk of material from one of her ancestors. Uh, th- this is a this is an important point here that if your ancestors or somebody in your family gives you lots of documents and stuff, take them because you never know where they can lead you. Uh, These included her ancestors' freedom papers. As as, um, Sarah mentioned a few minutes ago, where 
if you were freed, you had to be on a list and be licensed to be in the city of St. Louis and other uh, places. So she, that is, uh, our member had that information, and she started to look at more and more things. So let me just kind of jump backward here. By 1750, uh, there was a young man by the name of John Brander who was enslaved to a man by the name of uh, John Dunlap who lived in Dinwiddie County, Virginia. Okay. The slave accompanied his owner to some part, someplace in Petersburg, Virginia, where he, he fell ill, that is, the owner. And the owner went to all of the doctors that he could, and the doctors couldn't do anything for him. His, his health continued to deteriorate. Uh, John Brand offered to help him, but it was illegal and dangerous for a slave to administer any kind of medication to a white person at that time. But as this uh, person got closer to death, he asked Brander to do what he could to help. Long story short, he treated this uh, uh, man, uh, Dunlap. He improved, his health improved. He came back, and Dunlap wanted to award Brander by getting his freedom. At that time, you had to petition the state legislature in Virginia. Uh, He did so. And the late state legislature rejected it. Uh, he he applied several times for for this person's freedom, and eventually he got his freedom. Hmm. Long story short, this this uh, enslaved person, John Brander, married, had a few children. One of whom was Nathaniel Brander, who was born in 1782, thereabouts. Of course, born free. As somehow he got an education, including a law education. I'm not sure how that happened yet, but uh, by the seven, uh, I'm sorry, by the 1800s, he was active in the American Colonization Society, which was a uh, a white group that was uh, uh, working against slavery and trying to encourage African people to go back to Africa. It seems like that concept keeps coming up here today. <laughs> it's been an ongoing but, theme. Which is fine. I, have a, I don't have a problem with it. But uh, the race relations in, in this country was at the rock bottom at this time. And being an educated free black man, if you remember the whole case of um, 12 years a slave, it was dangerous to be a free black man, in, in this, even in the North. So he at the behest of the Freedom Society, decided to go to Africa to make a place for people of African descent who wanted to return. He did take the first ship out of America, Hmm. the ship called Elizabeth, and went to Sierra Leone, stayed there for a couple of years, and then went into the region that would become Liberia, where he met a friend who also lived in Petersburg, Joseph Jenkins Roberts, who eventually became the first president of Liberia, and Nathan Brander first became the Supreme Court Justice of Liberia, and then the first vice president of Liberia. Now, we can look around and say, oh my gosh, that's a poor country today. Yes, but how many of your ancestors went and started a country? Yeah, really. That's, that's I that's, give them big credit for exactly. Yeah, that's so, that's remarkable. Um, among the other things that your organization is working on, I understand you recently entered into an agreement to work with the Jesuits and the St. Louis University Research Group. Tell us a little bit about what that project is about. 
Sure. Again, I'll struggle to be brief here. <laughs> uh, Saint, um, I'm sorry. Georgetown University in the 1700s enslaved about 300 uh, African people. The, the school was going bankrupt. They sold 272 of those slaves to Louisiana, which was a horrible thing because that was a death sentence. Uh, they didn't die all, all off, by the way. But of that six, three couples from that same group in Georgetown University in 1827 were brought to St. Louis. Now, St. Louis University was founded, at least started in 1818. Mm-hmm. But it was a little fledgling college on the banks of the Mississippi River. These slaves were then brought to, brought to Florissant, Missouri at the novitiate, which is where the, uh, they taught uh, priests to be priests. And they, they worked on that farm in Florissant. Then they were sent to St. Louis University to help build this university here. Now, out of six families, and, and this is the thing with genealogy, every generation you go back, the family doubles, you know, the mother, the father, grandparent, great-grandparent. From that time, because these people were kept enslaved by St. Louis University and the Jesuits until after the Civil War, 1865. Mm-hmm. And so we, we are now trying to find the descendants of those enslaved people, which is a prodigious undertaking, but yes. we, we, we're, we're up to the task. Uh, we have found some of the people, and some of the names uh, that we're looking at were interesting, and I'll just give one because uh, if these people are, some of these people are living, we don't want to uh, betray their privacy, uh, is Louis Chavon. Louis Chavon was a, um, a musician, a noted musician in St. Louis during the ragtime era, and if you want to hear some beautiful music, you should hear his composition of uh, heliotrope bouquet. Uh, He was a contemporary and a friend of Scott Joplin. Uh, Those are the kinds of things. And there are other people who have done some things for this city who came out of that uh, slave period, Mm -hmm. those families. Sarah Cato, um, thinking about that legacy of St. Louis University, which is right here in town, the, you know, the Jesuits um, being involved with slave trading, why do you think it's important for us to be sort of exploring these stories, not just to leave them in the past? Because as we sit here hard by St. Louis University, um, you look at the university and you think, my, what a wonderful place. But even wonderful places have moles and scars and things of that sort. They aren't perfect places. They're just nice. And the niceness and the good that St. Louis University has done is not wiped out by the bad, Mm -hmm. but we shouldn't take an eraser and just erase the bad and play like it never happened. Mm -hmm. This is reality. This is life. America has bumps and bruises and knots and all kinds of things that we as Americans should recognize, should embrace, and move on and try to fix them so they never happen again. I I wanted to to add something to that, if I might. Um, Let us be clear about something. 
we're, I don't think any of us are sitting here saying, you know, we hate America or we hate white people or we hate St. Louis you know, or any place else. It is what it is. And uh, with historians, uh, a historian's job is to search for the truth and let it fall out where it, where it may. That's where, that's where we're coming from. And sort of what's the emotional resonance for that, for you, thinking about um, your, the role that your family has played in American history? Bernice Hartfield, is that something that you find yourself thinking about? Not really. I, I just wanted to be able to have a history or something to pass to my children after I get a certain age mm-hmm. and let them know that we, we have been here, we've worked hard, you have good, you have bad. In every in every family, in every city, in every state. So I think we should all try to get you know to get to know what is the truth mm-hmm. instead of colored color rosy picture. You know this happened, that happened, and you know. But the, it's a lot of stuff in the family that you don't want to mention, but it's the truth. It's the truth. That and kind of should. echoes what Sarah was saying. Like right. let's just get to the bottom of this for good or for bad. Right. And what you have to remember also, throughout all of this. No matter what has happened, I'm still here. We have survived. We have triumphed. And that is a story worthy of telling to children, grandchildren, those that come behind us in, you know, schools or wherever. Mm-hmm. It's worthy to be told and should be told. So in our last couple minutes here, for those who might be thinking about getting started with something like this, what would you say as the best advice of what should they do first? Um, Jim Vincent? Yeah, well, uh, usually uh, African-American genealogy is like any other. You start out with yourself and you work backwards. And you work backwards, of course, until you get to the uh, 1870s. That's when it becomes a challenge. The key, the key is patience. Mm. Okay, Sarah, what would you say? What's what's the where would you start at? I guess um, I following guess, up on I what guess, Jim said. Um, for uh, practical purposes, yes, patience is most definitely the key. Um, spelling doesn't count. Mm-hmm. Throw don't that out the window. Don't assume anything because uh, you know, as you may discover, like I did, you may be looking for enslaved people, and your people were never enslaved. Um, the other thing that you need to do is start with your oldest relative. Sit down and talk to them. Uh, now, keep in mind, they don't have to talk to you. They don't have to tell you anything. So you want to be polite. You want to be courteous and respectful. You know, if you know that Aunt Mabel likes a little Johnny Walker Red, you might take a little with you. Uh, at the time as a gift, you know. So uh, bribe your ancestors. Just, uh, not necessarily bribe, but, encourage. you encourage. know, encourage <laughs> and be 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 a good house guest. Um, come to them and you don't just say, now tell me all about grandma and granddaddy. That's not what you do. Mm-hmm. You start talking with them and you let them guide the conversation and Older people generally, if you talk to them for a while, will go back to talking about what happened to them when they were young. Uh, you know, and you you want to know a little bit about technology. Mm-hmm. Have your tape recorder, your pen and paper, your phone. Um, if you take 
say, like Bernice's grandchild, if you take your grandchild with you, they know how to work all of that. Mm-hmm. Involve the young people in yes, your family. absolutely. And it sounds like a good next step after that, uh, just to wrap up real quickly here, is that they might want to um, contact your groups. Um, and on yes. that note, I want to thank our guests for being here today. That's Sarah Cato and Bernice Hartfield of the African Ancestry Researchers of St. Louis. That's a great group to look into. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for asking me. And also Jim Vincent of the St. Louis African American History and Genealogy Society. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is such a fascinating topic. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.